Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And as we continue our series in this letter, we are now coming to some incredibly practical teaching from the Apostle Paul. He has just exhorted the saints at Philippi to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so now he comes to expound upon this doctrine of sanctification and to show how salvation is to be worked out. So hear now the word of our Lord from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Well, thus far, the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. Father, we come to You thanking You for this most holy Word that You have given us. This Word which is the Word of life. This Word which transforms hearts and renews minds. And Father, as we have just read this Word, we ask that Your blessing would be upon the reading of it, that You would make that reading effectual in our hearts. And Lord, we ask that as we have heard this Word read, and now as we hear the proclamation of it, that You would give us ears to rightly hear it. That we would not hear it passively, but actively listening with our ears, the ears of our hearts. And Lord, as we approach the preaching of this Word, we ask that Your blessing would be upon it as well. We trust and rest in Your promise that the Word of God will go forth and it will never return void. We ask, Lord, that Your Word would go forth today and not return void. Father, we ask that Your blessing would be upon the man who preaches he is unworthy to open up this book and to look therein 
and to proclaim these excellent mysteries unto the people of God. But you have called him unto this and you have uh, equipped him with the Spirit to do this. So Lord, we ask that the man would decrease so that Christ Jesus would increase. We ask that the preaching of the Word would not be in the wisdom and enticing words of man, but it would be in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Father, we trust that You will use this Word to mold us and shape us into the people that You have called us to be. So use this Word, Lord, to conform our hearts after the image of Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, perhaps one thing that we can all agree on is that this world is a very dark place. And that statement that this world is a dark place, it may not even be very controversial to those who are out there in the world, who are outside of the church, those unbelievers. Though they would probably have a different understanding of what the darkness of the world is than we do. But it seems to be a fairly agreed upon fact that this world is dark. So I want you to take a moment and think about the world in which we live. The evil of this world, the darkness of this world is plain to see. Homosexuality and all other sorts of perversions have become not only acceptable in society, but they've become commonplace. False religions and idolatries and heresies are not only practiced throughout the world, but they are promoted and protected by wicked magistrates. The blood of babes flows through the streets of nearly every nation on this planet. There are wars and killings and violence which occur each and every day. This world truly is a dark place. Darkness has so permeated this world that to attempt to walk through it is like attempting to crawl through a cave in which no light is able to penetrate. I don't know if you've ever been inside the depths of a cave and experienced the darkness that is found within. When I was in middle school and high school, 
I got into outdoor adventuring. I would go hiking and camping and swimming in creeks and jumping off of waterfalls. And included in this adventurous time in my life was cave exploring. A group of us would go to different caves and we would do these guided explorations of them, seeking a cheap thrill and hoping to experience something that no one else had ever come across. And getting into the cave was usually the easiest part. Most of the time, it's, it was simply involved walking into the mouth of the cave. But other times, it was a bit of a tighter fit, but it was always relatively easy. And then as you go deeper down into the cave, the light from the mouth would slowly grow fainter and fainter, and so we would turn on our headlamps. And then the tunnels that you're going down would get tighter and tighter and they would grow more and more compact. Pretty soon, no longer would you be walking upright, but you would be on your hands and knees and eventually on your belly. And there was this one time we went to a cave and we were going through it and uh, we were crawling on our bellies and we could feel the, the top of the tunnel rubbing against our backs that's how tight it was. But eventually that tunnel opened up into this very large and spacious cavern that was filled with beautiful stalactites and stalagmites. It was, it was an amazing sight to see. It was a beautiful scene. And then our guide told us to turn off our headlamps. And if you've never been in total darkness before, it's, it's hard to explain that experience. We were so deep inside that cave that there was not a sliver of light to be found. And the guide told us that if we spent too much time in the total darkness that our eyes would go blind from straining so hard to find light. Now, I don't know if that's true, but whether or not it is true, it does make for a good illustration for what it's like to live in darkness, uh, in the darkness of this world without the light of the gospel. We become blind to it, desensitized to the wickedness, and ultimately, we just don't see. But then in that cavern, in the pitch black, our guide did something. Our guide took out a match and struck it. And that single match lit up everywhere that the darkness had once covered. It suddenly illuminated that cavern with what seemed to be the brightest light that we had ever seen. Compared to the blackness of the dark, that single match was brighter than a star. And brothers and sisters, that's what you're called to be. You're to be a match in the pitch black darkness of this world.
That's what the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippian saints here in our text to be. To be lights shining in the darkness. And so the exhortation is to you as well. Live your lives so that you shine as lights in the midst of this dark world. Live your lives so that you shine as lights in the midst of this dark world. And we will consider this exhortation in our text by looking at three headings. First, the principle. Next, the practice. And finally, the product. So let's first turn our attention to focus on the principle that is emphasized here in our passage. And what's interesting is that Paul emphasizes this principle by way of presenting a negative. And we see this in verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. The principle that Paul is teaching these saints in Philippi in this passage is what he has been teaching them ever since chapter 1. And that is the need for unity and humility. He's combating a known problem among the saints here in this church that, they, that there are murmurings and disputings among them. And while he is not openly rebuking them at this point, he does see uh, the need to correct this error by teaching and instruction and by exhortation. Now the nature of these murmurings and disputings is not made known to us, but we can be sure that they had risen up to a level that it was threatening the unity of the body. Divisions were beginning to arise among these brethren And Paul is seeking to instruct these saints towards unity and humility. Now you may be thinking that nowhere in this passage does Paul mention pride or the need for humility. Unless you are tempted to believe that uh, this notion of the need for unity and humility is being read into the text. Remember the context in which this passage is found. You can't just take these five verses and divorce them from everything that is preceded. It's one continuous thought that Paul is actually making here in this text. What we've talked about for the last two months is directly impacting how we are to understand this passage. Pride fosters in the soul a murmuring disposition towards God. And it creates a contentious, disputing disposition towards man. And humility counteracts both of those. Charles Simeon, the Anglican minister, writes, 
The absence of of a murmuring disposition is to a certain degree the same as positive contentment. And the absence of a contentious disposition as positive love. Murmurings and disputings are alleviated by pursuing contentment and love, unity and humility. Friends, we must guard ourselves from falling into the same trap as the Philippians did. You may be thinking that we could never fall into this trap here at Westminster. We are united in our faith and we are humble towards one another. Yes, praise God that He has preserved us from major divisions and strife within the body. But that was not always the case. There has been issues in the past that threatened the unity of this body. And we ought not be so naive as to think we are immune from the possibility of those issues arising again in the future. We are not better than the Philippians. And we are not better than our forefathers who, leaving Egypt for the promised land, fell into this same trap as well. In Exodus 16 and verses 1 to 3, we read, And they took their journey from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into, the, into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. These Israelites were just delivered out of the house of bondage and two months later, they are murmuring Grumbling, complaining against what the Lord has done for them. How He was providing for them. A murmuring or disputing spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and a lovelessness and pride towards others. It's a denial of grace. It's a working against your salvation rather than working salvation out in every aspect of your life. Murmurings and disputings are easy. They're almost instinctive. 
Biting your tongues and serving in humility, even when you don't like it, out of the love, out of a love for Christ and for his people. Now that's hard. But that's what we are called to do. That is a basic part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a fundamental response to the person and work of Christ Jesus and what he has done for you on your behalf. Do not forget how great a salvation you have in Christ like the Israelites did. They forgot their salvation. Only two months later, they forgot the deliverance of the Lord. Do not be like the Israelites, forgetting your salvation. Do not resort to murmurings about the present state of things. Do not turn to disputings, riling up discord and divisions among the body, but instead live out this principle which is laid before you this day to seek out unity and humility. Otherwise, the enemy will gain a foothold even here in this congregation. And he will do everything in his power to bring about the destruction of this body of believers. So how do you do this? How are you to live out this principle of unity and humility? How are you to guard yourselves from the attacks of Satan against this body? Well, you must take this principle out of the realm of the theoretical and put it into the realm of the practical. So that leads us now to consider the practice. Look with me at verse 14 through the beginning of verse 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding forth the word of life. These are the fruits of that humility to which Paul had exhorted the saints. God's adoption of us ought to be a motive to be blameless to live a blameless life so that we may in some degree resemble our father who is blameless and although there never has been such perfection in this world as to have nothing worthy of reproof believers can be said to be unreprovable to be blameless as our text says, if they aim at this practice with every part of their beings. We should endeavor not only to be blameless, uh, not only to be harmless, but to be blameless. Not to just not do harm. The world can do that. The atheist down the street can make sure that he does no harm. But only those who are in Christ can be blameless. 
We must endeavor not only to be harmless, but to be blameless, not only not to do hurt, but to not come under the just suspicion of it. You are so to walk that others may see clearly in you a transcript of the mind and will of Jehovah. And that conforming themselves after your example, they may advance daily in the paths of righteousness and grace. Calvin writes, You are, it is true, enclosed in the midst of the wicked. But in the meantime, bear in mind that you are, by God's adoption, separated from them. Let there be, therefore, in your manner of life, conspicuous marks by which you may be distinguished. Nay, more, this consideration ought to stir you up the more to aim at a pious and holy life, that we may not also be a part of the crooked generation, entangled by their vices and contagion. And so you must shine as lights in the midst of the darkness of this world. You, brothers and sisters, you are to be bright lights in an otherwise dark world. You are to be stars by which others may learn to chart the course of this life towards the safety which is only found in Christ Jesus. Be that match in the midst of the pitch black cavern, shedding its light on everything, illuminating everything. Believers, it is true that you were once children of the night and that there is in this world nothing but darkness. But God has enlightened you for this end. That the purity of your life may shine forth amidst that darkness and that His grace may appear all the more illustrious. Christ is the light of the world, but you Christians are lights in the world. Think of it this way. You are a candlestick. And the doctrine of the gospel is the candle. And that doctrine, which being placed in us, it diffuses light on all sides. You do an injustice to the Word of God if it it does not shine forth in your life. You are to be holding forth the word of life. The gospel must be put on display in your actions, in your life, in your practice. If you have been given this glorious gospel, if you have experienced the life-giving nature of the word, then why would you not hold it forth and, and let the light of the word shine forth in the midst of the crooked and perverse nation? Why would you hide it away? 
Christ uses this imagery in Matthew 5 and verses 14 to 16. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are the light in this world. And unbelievers will look at you and see that light and you will be the example unto them to lead them to their Father in heaven. There's, a, there's an apocryphal saying that's often attributed to uh, Francis of Assisi, which says that you are to preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, I don't know the true origins of this saying and I'm not sure that anyone knows the true origins of this saying and most likely did not come from Francis. Uh, And when looking at the saying itself, the words of the saying itself, I hope you can easily see the flaw in it. You can't preach the gospel and then if necessary use words. The gospel must be proclaimed using words. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10.17 But I think this apocryphal saying can be helpful in, in understanding what Paul is saying here in this passage. I think it is helpful as a reminder to live out our Christian experience and to let the light of the gospel shine forth in light, in our lives, both in word and in deed. Preach the gospel at all times, and at all times use words. But do not let your life bear witness to something other than the gospel. If you profess with your mouth the gospel, but that person then looks at your life and sees the devil, you have done no no service to the Lord. You must let the gospel shine forth in your life in word and in deed. And if you do these things, if you seek after unity and humility within the body, and if you do all things without murmurings and disputings, if you live lives blameless and harmless, and you hold forth the gospel of Jesus Christ shining as lights in the world, then there will be an effect. The Lord blesses this action. You will witness the fruit of your labor for Christ's sake. 
either in this life or in the life to come. You will see the fruit of your labor. And so let us now focus our attention on the product. What does this principle and practice produce? Look with me at verses 16 through 18. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye, rejo- do ye joy and rejoice with me. Here we see that this product is twofold. The first aspect of the product pertains to the minister, or if you want to be more specific looking at this passage in particular, it pertains to the Apostle Paul. He loved the saints at Philippi. He rejoiced with them in what God has been doing in their lives. He rejoices in the fact that his labors among them is bearing fruit and that they are walking in accordance with the gospel which has transformed their lives. He rejoices in knowing that should these men and women persevere unto the end, that he will rejoice with them in the day of Christ. In that last great day. What a joy it must have been to the Apostle to look upon the faithfulness of the saints at Philippi and then to look down at his feet at the chains that he is in and to think it's all worth it. It's all for the glory of Jehovah and He has chosen to bless the work of His servants in Philippi. What joy that must have brought Paul. This hope, this this rejoicing that Paul would not have run in vain or labored in vain, it's not unique just to him. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope as well. My hope as your pastor. Bob's hope as your elder. This is our eager expectation. We eagerly look forward to the day of Jesus Christ when we will stand before Him and give an account for the souls which He has entrusted unto us. And it is our hope and expectation that we too will rejoice just as Paul did concerning the Philippians. That we will rejoice because our labor was not in vain. This is why your elders here pour out our lives as a drink offering in service to you. Because we love you. Because we take joy in you. And we rejoice over seeing the Lord work in you. This is why there's such an emphasis in the 
preaching and teaching and conversation of this church to grow in grace, to mature in the faith, and to pursue unity and humility. To see you all fulfill the duty which has been given unto you by the Lord Jesus Christ in your being His would be our great reward. I rejoice in the Lord that my labors among you are not in vain. For even now I see the Spirit working among you. So do not lose heart, dear saints. Do not fret. Do not be discouraged. But be encouraged that your labors do not go unnoticed here. And that Jehovah will bless the fruit of your labors. I know this may sound cheesy. Like some Hallmark card or something. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that you are my joy. And I thank God for you. I want you to know of the joy that I receive in knowing that you are striving for the gospel, to see it advance, to see it transform your lives. What joy that brings me. Whatever may come our way, whether good times or bad, whether persecution or revival, I will count it all as joy for the sake of Christ being exalted here in this place. And I pray that you will as well. But there's another side to the product which must uh, be discussed. And that is, is that which pertains to all of us. To you, brothers and sisters. We must do all these things out of an abundance of gratitude for the work that Jehovah has done in purchasing our salvation. And friends, the product of your efforts ought to be to rejoice alongside your brethren. To rejoice alongside the saints at Philippi. To rejoice alongside the Apostle Paul. To rejoice alongside your elders here at Westminster. That's what your efforts, your labors ought to produce. Rejoicing among the saints. Look to the sufferings and turmoil of those who came before you and know that their labors were not in vain. And that no matter what you go through, if you remain faithful, the joy of the Lord is your reward and your labor will not be in vain either. Your trials may be great, but you shall be enabled to bear them. Your difficulties may be great, but you shall be enabled to surmount them. Nothing shall be impossible for you if only you live by faith in Christ Jesus. 
In the midst of temptation, you shall be preserved blameless. And your light shall shine brighter and brighter unto that perfect day. I want to close with the words of Reverend Simeon. Beloved brethren, if another person could do and suffer so much for you, what, what ought not you to do or suffer for the welfare of your own souls? Should it be any difficulty to you to devote yourselves to God? Or should you regard for one moment the contempt or obloquy which you can incur for His sake? Methinks you are blushing for your lukewarmness and cowardice. You are ashamed that the things of time and sense can retain such influence over your minds. And in truth, well, may the most diligent among us be shamed when we think how near we are to the borders of eternity and what a sacrifice they must become to the justice of God hereafter who have not surrendered themselves as living sacrifices to his honor in this present world. Brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed. Do not fail to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and blameless before God. But instead, be strengthened, be emboldened, be encouraged. Do not hold anything back, but go forth and live your lives so that you shine as lights in the midst of this dark world. Let us pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. That you have brought us out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. And that you have given us freedom in Christ Jesus. Let us not be ashamed. Father, let your Spirit encourage us and strengthen us to live our lives as lights in the midst of this dark world so that the light of the Gospel would go forth and that it would shine so as to drive the darkness away. Lord, give us the strength to do this, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.